Okay, well, welcome to our panel on meeting Jesus in the margins. Um, it's like you guys are all marginalizing yourselves by sitting in the back. You must be Catholic, right? That joke is getting old. Yeah, I know. Um, and so I'm excited to see this panel. We're going to hear some different perspectives on how we can meet Jesus, particularly through social work and Corporal Works of Mercy, and our moderator today will be Dan Duffy. He's the attorney for the diocese, so we know that he's one of the attorneys on the good side. He actually kind of had the, had the trial he was wrapping up last night, so we're very thankful that he was able to get here. Um, and uh, without further ado, I'll let you introduce the panelists. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Do you want to put this down in front of them? Um, yeah, it can be like here for right now when I'm speaking at the podium, but then once we're doing the questions, maybe put it over on the other side. Uh, as she said, my name is Dan Duffy, and I'm, uh, you know, you always have to be a little bit cautious there because there's always some noise. But I am, I've been the attorney for the diocese for the last about 14 years, so I got on board doing the work for the diocese at a time, as many of us know, in the, in the life of the church that was uh, an, an interesting time for me to take over that uh, as part of my practice. But I've uh, enjoyed and I've enjoyed being a part of the life of the diocese uh, for the, for well, about 27 years, and certainly my role as the attorney I've enjoyed greatly for the last 14 years. I'm here to be the moderator, which means I'm kind of like the referee. Uh, I don't know what, why they think you need one. I think you guys all look, I don't think there's going to be any violations or, you know, fouls. But if there are, that's what I'm here for, to kind of moderate the questions. But we have four panel members, and I, one of them was Nancy Gwaltney that uh, we were just talking about. The fact she goes to the cathedral, and we haven't met before because, you know, if you're at a large parish, your, your, your parish is really like 5.30 p.m. on Saturday night. And like I said, for us, it's like 5.30 p.m. Saturday night, the first 12 rows. And, and, and then it was for years, oh my gosh, there comes the Duffies with their eight kids. Because, you know, we, are, we always had to push everybody out. But anyway, Nancy Gwaltney is one of our, she's a member of the cathedral. She's one of our panel members. And I just met her for the first time today. Three of the other panel members, I... I have a little bit of kind of understanding because I, I, I know some of the perspective that they're bringing to the Life on the Margins talk because in some respects, like Dave, one of them is Dave Emery, uh, and Dave has worn the hat, uh, and he can tell you about it in doing mission work that my wife and I and some of our kids have also been a part of through St. Thomas More. Josie O'Mara has worn that same hat uh, as a student at St. Thomas More. And then our last panel member is Rich Rangel, and he's going to talk about the perspective here in Rapid City of work uh, that um, kind of an ad hoc group uh, has been a part of for a number of years, and Rich can certainly expound on that, that our family's been a part of as well on Sunday mornings, um, working with uh, many people whose life is on the margins um, in, in Rapid City. So uh, I'd like to have those panel members one at a time. They're going to come up there and give you about five to ten minutes. It's not like I get to gong them but they're going to five or 10 minutes from their perspective. And then when the four panel members are done, then we will open it up for questions, which I will moderate. And I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do my best. But anyway, we'll, Josie, would you like to come up first? Hello everyone, my name is Josie O'Meara and I'm a senior at St. Thomas More High School. I was first asked to speak at this conference by Father Mark at my senior class retreat at the end of August. Um, he confronted me after adoration and asked if I was willing to speak. My first thought was, 
Absolutely, probably not, because <laughs> I have a really large fear of public speaking. <laughs> um, and so I'm quite surprised at myself that I'm here today, but I'm very happy to be here and to um, kind of share my experience with the mission trip to Jamaica. Um, I first became familiar with the mission trip through my older brother, who I've always looked up to, especially since I started high school. My brother Henry went on the mission trip as a junior and senior in high school, and he had wonderful experiences with each. He described it as one of those truly life-changing experiences that don't happen very often. Um, from the moment I began to hear his stories about the trip, I decided that I also wanted to um, see the residents and experience the joy that I saw alive in Henry's life after he came back from Jamaica. I applied to be on the team in the spring of my sophomore year, and for most of the duration of my junior year leading up, to the trip was spent at various fundraisers or meetings or team bonding sessions. Ironically, it didn't really set in for me until I was on the plane with my team members. Um, <laughs> when we got to Jamaica after having a few issues with the customs, we got on the Mustard Seed Communities bus and rode to Blessed Assurance, which is a children's orphanage in the mountains for neglected or mistreated children with severe mental and or physical disabilities. Um, by the time we arrived, it was pretty late at night and dark outside, and so all the residents were asleep. We ended the night with a prayer and then went to bed. Um, I was not only met with the humidity in the morning, but also with the laughter of children coming from outside. At this point, I was extremely excited to meet them, but also really nervous. <laughs> um, we spent the next few days interacting with the residents, whether it was by singing, having mass with them, singing some more, playing with them, or even feeding them. It was one of the most humbling experiences I think I've ever <coughs> witnessed. One of, the, one of the stories I have is um, with a kid named Javon. He was one of the more um, able kids to walk around by himself, and it was, it was a big thing for them to take pictures with us, and just seeing a phone was really, it made them really happy. Um, and so some of the kids who were more cognitive, they had, they had just like an old phone that um, they could carry around and use for fun. But Javon had a block of wood, and this was his phone, and he was so proud of it. And, um, at one point, we were having mass or just singing in their chapel, and some of the kids were dancing up in front of the altar, and he took out his block of wood and started videoing the kids with his block of wood. And it was just one of the sweetest things I think I've ever seen. <laughs> um, going along with the same concept, there was another kid named Christopher, and he was in a wheelchair, and he couldn't talk as much. Um, but he could answer yes or no questions. And so I was, I was just sitting there with him, kind of chatting with him, and, um, and he kept reaching his, his uh, seatbelt of his um, wheelchair over to me. And I, it took me forever to figure it out, but he was, he was using his seatbelt as a phone. And he would, he would kind of talk into his seatbelt, and then he'd, he put it over to my ear and we would communicate that way. And so I would ask, 
uh, Christopher, is it raining outside? And he would say, no, it's not raining. And then um, I would ask, is it sunny outside? And he said, yeah. And so then I asked, Christopher, is it a good day? And he said, yeah, it's a good day. <laughs> um, okay, so after a few days, we packed our things and left for Jacob's Ladder, which was a community-like setting, a lot similar to Blessed Assurance. Um, but it was for adults with mental and or physical disabilities. Um, at this place, each person had a job that contributed to the community to keep it flourishing, whether it was by growing crops or making jewelry that was eventually sold in the town. It was different to interact with these residents versus the children at Blessed Assurance, not only because of their age difference, but the ones at Jacob's Ladder were generally a little more interactive. Um, one story I have is of a lady named Erica, and she was in a wheelchair, but she was almost or completely cognitive. Um, and at one point, Ashlyn Duffy and I were, were talking with her, and she, she wanted to see pictures of our families. And so we were showing her pictures, um, and Erica recognized my brother from two years ago. And that, that really surprised me because they have groups that come in there all the time to work with them and to do service projects with them. Um, and she still remembered my brother. And so that was something that we kind of connected over and that made me really happy. <laughs> um, along with getting to know the residents, we also did a service project of digging out pre-existing posts in concrete so that new, stronger posts could be put in along a road. I swung a sledgehammer for the first time, but I mostly stuck to clearing away the debris because I never really made much of a dent in the concrete. <laughs> um, this project was wonderful because it really brought us together as a mission team who was working for one cause. Over the course of the trip, we took many trips on the bus either into town for mass or from community to community. One of the most striking images that I encountered was the extreme poverty. I have a very distinct memory of our group driving on the highway and suddenly we encountered this beautiful entrance to the most exquisite, magnificent, and expensive resort. As we kept driving, these would keep coming after the previous one. However, just a hundred yards or so to either side of these entrances were numerous shacks. And by a shack, I mean someone's home made from corrugated tin and maybe wood. I mean, the, these people as human, as human as the rest of us were living in structures that were probably, that we probably considered unfit for an animal of any kind to live in. Seeing this kind of poverty over and over again really put things into perspective for me. Looking back at my time with the residents in the mustard seed communities while seeing the immense poverty made me realize how much I take my blessings for granted. The residents of Blessed Assurance and Jacob's Ladder are some of the most happy, are some of the happiest people that I've ever encountered. They are absolutely filled with the joy of Christ, and they love to show it. By being a part of the mission team, I learned that, often sometime, that oftentimes, the little things in life are what adds up to be the most substantial reason for finding true happiness. Looking at the residents who would never have the opportunities that each of us has in this room, but still seeing them so appreciating, so full of love, and so willing to live their lives to the fullest potential made me want to implement those same values in my life. It's very easy to get stressed and live your life by comparison to others, but ultimately, that is not going to make you happy. 
One of the biggest lessons I learned in my life came from children and adults living in the mountains over 2,000 miles away, who chose happiness despite their conditions. I think each of us has the ability to choose happiness despite our hardships in life. God created us to live a happy life, not a stressed one. She really didn't want to do it, and she did a fantastic job. Um, the, the next person that I'm going to introduce is Dave Emery from Black Hills Corp. And Dave can give you the perspective of being a parent uh, on the uh, parent chaperone on these mission trips. But just to give a little bit of perspective on how we got to that point, that where that what Josie just spoke about, in about 2010 there was a group out of Iowa that we had a connection with, that St. Thomas More had, the high school had a connection with, that was doing mission work in, in Honduras, doing water projects for remote mountain villages that, that really were almost beyond third world. And there were two students from St. Thomas More that went with this group. One of them, uh, one of them was one of our, our older sons and um, Katie Friedel. And they went with this group and it was a tremendous experience. And they came back and said, could we implement something like this at, in our school? And, and one of the challenges, it's really twofold. Number one, to help kids understand um, that, that it's not, you have to see the gospel lived out. And you have to, in, in order to see it, you have to see people who are living on the margins who really need uh, more than, than they're getting. And then second, to hopefully help them understand that this isn't about padding your resume. It's really about trying to have a meaningful experience impacting other people's lives. So the very next year in 2000. That was 2009. In 2010, we sent, the school sent their first full mission team to, um, to Honduras to work on water projects and did it for the next, I think, maybe three years or four years until there was some violence down there and the decision was made to not go back. And then we started working, the school started working in these communities in Jamaica, Jacob's Ladder, through the mustard seed communities. And it's been a tremendous experience for, I think, not just for the young people, but I will say, as somebody who, who didn't go to, to Jamaica, but who went to Honduras, tremendous experience for the adults. And that's the perspective that Dave Emery is going to give you now. Thank you, Dan. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, since Josie was talking about people recognizing people in pictures, I'm going to tell a story about Dan. So two, two years ago, Dan's wife, Carrie, and I were on this trip together. Maybe it was three years ago now. I forget. Three years ago. And we were sitting on the porch, and there's a particular resident who comes up and says, Hi, my name's Mark. What's yours? And like 10 minutes later, he'll come back and say, Hi, my name's Mark. What's yours? But he always wants to see pictures. And Carrie was showing him a picture of her family and going through all the kids and everything else. And he'd go, Who's this? And she'd say, Well... No, that's my daughter, and here's how old she is, and who's this? Got to Dan, and he goes, oh, he's old. <laughs> I don't know if she ever told you that story. <laughs> oh, okay. And rubbed it in, I'm sure, yeah. But, uh, you know, it was great fun. Um, as Dan says, I've, I've been on the trip to Jamaica a few times, now four, actually, and getting ready to go on my fifth time um, this coming spring. We generally always do it over the Easter break because the kids don't have to miss, miss so much school. Josie gave you a description a little bit about the communities, but the mustard seed community is obviously affiliated with the church, but it's a separate little nonprofit that runs a bunch of communities in Jamaica. We go to two. 
but they have a pregnant mother's compound, they have an HIV positive children's compound, and there's several different places in Jamaica, and now in a couple other countries as well, but the two we go to, one's the children's one, Blessed Assurance, that Josie talked about, I'm kind of in the mountains outside of Montego Bay, which is on the northern coast of the island, maybe an hour uh, up into the mountains. All children. Um, there's a couple that are like 18 or 19 uh, in that age, but most of them younger than that. Out of the 50 or so residents, there's a handful that are like Josie was talking about, Javon, some of them that are actually ambulatory they really can't talk as, as in a normal conversation, but you can communicate with them. And physically, they're pretty good. Um, Two-thirds, wheelchair or bedridden, can't talk, um, very minimal communication. Most have to be fed every meal, um, bathed, clothed, you know, all of that, every meal. Jacob's Ladder is uh, the adult compound, as Josie said, most of them can at least feed themselves. A lot of wheelchair-bound people, but they generally have to take care of themselves. So when they get to 18 or so, they'll transfer them there if they can care for themselves. Somewhat. They still have a lot of care given by the caretakers. But there's a couple, for example, twin brothers at, at Jacob's or at Blessed Assurance that will never be able to go to Jacob's Ladder because they just simply require too much care. But the whole deal and the whole point of this is most of these residents were abandoned. Huge percentage. They don't even know their real names. They don't know their birth dates. They don't know anything. Right? Um, some of them literally abandoned, like tied to a tree on the side of the road. So the, the whole point is they were abandoned once and the Monsignor that runs the place says we're not going to abandon them again. So... We have the children's compounds and then this Jacob's Ladder where they can live until they die, essentially. So that's the point. They run the place on a shoestring. I mean, literally. Um, when we go, we take our clothes and towels and sheets and everything for the week and we literally leave it all there. We don't bring anything home and that's what they use to clothe the kids. Regardless of how big it is or how small it is, you know, you'll see lots of shirts with knots tied in the side and, you know, that kind of stuff. They're clean, they're well cared for, they don't have enough caregivers to really give the residents a lot of attention. And that's what the volunteers are for. So that's the, really the role we play. Generally, as Josie said, we do a couple big projects at each compound that typically uh, pretty sparse tools and a lot of hard physical labor. So we've done things like, you know, Josie was talking about breaking concrete, setting posts. We've poured a lot of sidewalks over the years, but their idea of, you know, mixing cement is, they literally mix it in a pile on the ground. So pile of rock, pile of sand, throw some sacks of cement on top, and, you know, 10 people stand in a circle with a shovel and stir it till it looks about right, and then, <laughs> put it in five-gallon buckets, usually without even handles, and you kind of carry it like this and pour sidewalks that way. So it's hard physical labor. The accommodations are, you know, Josie described some of the residents. Ours certainly were a step up from that, but a very simple wooden structure, no interior walls, no, some of them don't have windows, um, 
tin roofs and certainly no air conditioning. There's not a hot water spigot anywhere. Um, it's, and we take, say, military showers. So turn on the water, get wet, soap up, turn it on, rinse off, get out. Water works sometimes, but not that often. So they keep like big barrels by the bathroom. So if you toilet won't flush, you can grab a bucket of water and flush the toilet in the middle of the night. Um, and we eat a lot of rice. Like every single meal. <laughs> Rice and goat and chicken basically are kind of the primary things and lots of lots of vegetables. In addition to the, the hard physical labor, obviously we spend a lot of time with the residents. So we'll help in the mornings. They always have a daily devotional, kind of a prayer time, singing, things like that. Wheel them all up to the chapel for that every morning. Um, spend time with them then after that typically feed them at least help feed a couple meals and then a lot of them have to be fed you know by hand um, with a spoon it's a slow process um, we do a lot of that and then during the day if, if we have free time try to spend as much of that time with the residents as we can um, the the interesting thing for me is just watching the impact you know the first year and I think Dan talked about it a little bit Everyone who goes, it, you know, has a pretty profound impact on you. Right? It's a very different environment, and you have a chance to see God at work in very simple ways. And I think it's easier to see it there because you're so out of your element, you know, that you, you don't really, you know, it's much more obvious to you because all the other things in your life are basically gone. It's very simple. Right? You eat, sleep, work, and, and help with the residents, and that's really all there is there. There's no, you know, no electronics, no television, no anything else. We don't use our, we don't let our kids use the phones while they're there. Um, take pictures, but the phones don't work. And so, you know, it's a, it's a much different experience. Probably one of my favorite stories um, in the four years I've been there was the first year. And one of the things that we do, and I, I think Josie mentioned a little bit about going to the Easter services and some of those things in, in Jamaica, um, which is different because the enculturation piece in Jamaica is different. But that was part of the spiritual thing. And the other thing that we did every day, obviously have daily mass, but then in the evenings we sit in a circle, basically in the chapel, because the stone floor in the chapel is the only place that's even moderately cool anywhere. <laughs> Literally pour sweat the whole time you're there, nights included. And, and sit on the floor in a circle and really share experiences of the day. And, and um, it, it's, it's really fun to watch. Um, the kids, it generally takes a day or two, but they'll start really opening up and talking about what they experienced that day. And a lot of it really has a big impact on them. So the first year we were there, we had a student, and this was probably the fourth or fifth day, and it was his turn to, to talk that evening, and he said, you know, I don't get it. I've been here like five days, and he said, every morning I wake up, it's dark outside. I can hear these ladies in the shacks giving kids baths, you know, um, bathing them, clothing them, putting them in wheelchairs, and, and they sing all the time. And they walk to work, like at Jacob's Ladder, it's probably a mile and a half walk to the main highway where then they either walk or catch a ride. And they sing the whole way. And there was a guy at Blessed Assurance the first two years we were there who literally mowed the grass in the compound with a machete. Long, slow process, obviously. 
Um, and he sang all day. And so the student said, you know, I just don't understand. And he said, I have no idea what on earth they have to be so happy about. Father Marchin looked at him and said, congratulations, you just figured out why you're here. It, it was, you know, fantastic experience. Um, the other thing in, in the communities there, and we visited a couple others actually in Kingston this last year. So we've been, I think, four compounds now. Generally just work at the two, but they have these signs all over that just say, he is here. And as I said before, I think you're so out of your element that you, the simple things that you do, sitting and holding the hand of someone who just sits and rocks in their wheelchair all day, and when you hold their hand, they stop. You know, those things, they, you know, they stick out to you in that environment. If you were at home, I'm not sure they would. And so a lot of those things are what we hear from the kids as we sit around in a circle every night. Definitely has an impact on them. My, my favorite part of the whole trip is, is really, especially after having gone the first time and experienced it myself, as just being there and watching the kids go through the experience themselves and watching it through their eyes. The first two years, I, I had the pleasure of my own son going. The last two, I haven't. Um, but it's just as fun watching the other kids. I mean, it truly moves them, and you can see the impact that it has on their life. And as Josie said about Henry, and I was there, he's my son's age, so... I was there the two years with Henry. You know, it's it's a life-changing experience for these kids. It truly is. Fantastic experience. One of the things I try to do is when we have some of these discussions about these little things that have such a big impact on them is remind them that, you know, God's present in those same actions at home. Right? You can go, and Rich is going to talk about feeding people on Sunday mornings and you can go sit with people in nursing homes and you can do those things as well. They're just as meaningful and just as impactful. You just don't notice them as much because you're not so far out of your element. Right? So try to bring it home with you and apply it in the things that you're comfortable in that setting. Right? Be nice to the kid who people are picking on and you know those sorts of things. <laughs> Out of the kids, every year, generally, I, I think the team's typically 22 kids and four or five adults, and that's limited by the size of this little tiny bus that, that they have. We, we, there's no room for another body on the bus. Um, at least half of those kids will shed a lot of tears during that eight to ten days. I mean, it has a real impact. Father Mark, you've been there. It's, uh, you know, truly impactful. And from my perspective, watching um, God work through our students is, is really a great experience. And I, I mean, Dave and Josie are, I mean, they couldn't be more correct. And I think, Father Mark, if I'm not mistaken, you went the year that I went to Honduras. It's a tremendous experience, and we've been fortunate, you know, in terms of my wife and I, that we've both been able to do it. We've had five of our kids do it, and one of the challenges as parents is that you want to raise your kids, because we, we, we just live in a, in, a, in a time and in a place where we are just awash in material things and goods, and we, it's like my dad always used to say, unfortunately for your generation, you've taken what we've called, you know, 
wants and turn them into needs. Uh, and you know, and and there's a lot of truth to that. But I think for kids, it's been a tremendous experience. So now, having kind of moved, we're going to move from Jamaica, and we're going to move uh, and and Honduras, and we're going to move closer to home. And the next person that I'm going to call up here to speak is Nancy Gwaltney from the cathedral. Um, and Nancy will share her perspective on people in the margins. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. As Dan said, my name is Nancy Gwaltney, and I'm president of St. Vincent de Paul out in the cathedral, so for Rapid City. Um, speaking about the, the mission work that you've been doing, I just did my first one in August to Peru, and so I can really relate. Um, we went to a school in the Andes Mountains, very poor area, 50 kids, and we painted the outside of the school and we deloused them which no one was looking forward to, but it was great fun because all the kids had their gunk in their hair and were timing it, and, and our interpreter was not around, and, and so I'm like, sing, sing, you know, trying to get them to do something, and, and they didn't know what I was saying, and somebody said, Feliz Navidad, I said, Feliz Navidad, let's do that. And then one of our other people in my group was, we wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> start, so we all started singing that. And even a few of the older ones that are in sixth grade started singing a few of the American English words that they knew. And it was just, we have this all recorded. It was just beautiful. And it was, it was so fun. So I hope to continue with missions. Um, the mission work I do here with St. Vincent de Paul is is also very rewarding, as Brad can attest. Um, we have three conferences in Western South Dakota and two thrift stores. There's a conference in Spearfish, one in Rapid City, and one at Our Lady of Black Hills. So we have been around for about a year and a half, and the gentleman that really was behind <coughs> all of this uh, had a lot of has a lot of experience in business, and so he started the three conferences in the two thrift stores within, what, about six months or so. That's the first time that's ever been done in the United States, so all of a sudden, Western South Dakota is on the map with National, and needless to say, now he runs the whole, all of the thrift stores nationally, uh, so he got taken away from us a little bit, but that's okay. So. What we do is we serve the poor and the needy and anything that people need. Um, I was late getting here. I was meeting with a friend uh, about her breaks. She's a nurse assistant and had to quit her job at the hospital. Uh, and she's a single mom because her breaks went out. And so we're trying to get the logistics of, you know, we've got somebody that's going to replace them, but we got to get the car there, you know, these things. So it, it takes a lot of time and energy, but this is my calling, and I think this is what we are here for on Earth. We, um, we have dispersed about $86,000 in our fiscal year, we just had our fiscal years, in Rapid City, our Rapid City Conference. Uh, we, we work for grants, we work for anything, <laughs> anything we can get. Um, 
we we are in desperate need of funds always we're in desperate need of help especially we um recently i actually just kind of shut us down because we have about 10 really active or semi-active members five of us take the daily phone calls one of which the only one that's retired is is out of town for some weeks so now we're down to four of us and we get anywhere from 10 to 25 phone calls a day so during you know in between me saying seeing patients i'm checking our google sheets to see who's on there i'm signing my name to six or seven people and to call someone i mean to have one person takes days you try you have to try to initiate contact once you do that you find out their need you know i need my electric turned back on okay so then they have to call black hills energy for instance and then we have to follow up okay is this really what they how much they owe okay this is how much we can do all right then we call them back so it's days worth of phone calls back and forth um if they need mattresses we meet them at the thrift store if, if they need food we're going to the grocery store so we're you know, and, and the four other four of us all have full-time jobs. So we try to do this, you know, throughout the day and the evenings and, and on the weekends. So that is our biggest need, and um, Father Christensen's going to hear about it when I meet with him this Friday <laughs> because we have got to get something going uh, so that we can, I can go ahead and open us back up for business. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, at this point, we do have funds. Um, but we just don't have the people. They're just my people are just too tired to to do it like this every day, and we've been doing it for a year and a half. So, what I ask of all of you is your prayers first and more, foremost. We we just need prayers to keep doing what we're doing. I strongly feel that I I know this is a calling from God for me to do this, and. I want to keep doing it, and I know our other members are so entrenched in this, and it, it just fulfills our life and, and enriches our life even more and brings us closer to God. Our main focus of St. Vincent de Paul is spirituality, spirituality within the conferences, within our members, because if we grow spiritually together, then we can serve others in that capacity. That's that's our whole mission. So please pray for us. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Um, you know, we've seen the perspective of being in a third world country, and and then there's an incredible contrast that when you go there for anybody who's done mission work, and I'm, even with Nancy going to Peru, you get to see an incredible contrast between what we, where we live and how we live and how they live. What organizations like the St. Vincent de Paul Society do is remind us, and we all know who they are, right here at home, what we would call the working poor. And I think sometimes the challenge of the working poor is even greater, and we all know who some of those people are because it is very difficult just to, to exist in the way that our society requires that you have to exist. And places like the St. Vincent de Paul Society are ones that help those people who are on the fringes and on the edge, and it also helps us 
uh, better understand what our calling is in the gospel, and that is to reach out to those people who need uh, what we have to offer. Which brings us to the fourth person that's going to speak uh, is Rich Rangel. And, and I can tell you, there, there aren't too many, there's a number of people, and, and we've been a part of it too on Sunday mornings, and Rich can tell you the geography and what's done. And, and we've done it, and we've kind of, because of our schedule, been hit and miss, but, but I have never once been there on Sunday morning, I don't think ever, that Rich and his wife weren't there. Come rain or shine or snow or whatever, Rich and his wife were there unloading their car, setting up tables, feeding um, hundreds of people, including St. Pat or St. Patrick's Day, uh, Thanksgiving dinner uh, that, we, that is served to those people, Easter dinner that served to the people, and it's just an ad hoc group. But there are some people who have just done it better than others, and I'll tell you, Rich and his wife are among those who have done it better than anyone. We call it the Sunday morning feed. And I'm gonna give you just a real quick background on me. Uh, I think I was asked to make this presentation because my wife and I do this together. And if she were up here, the 10 minutes would, half of it would be spent crying. <laughs> she has a very, very tender heart. And I think they wanted to get something besides the sobbing during, during the 10 minutes. I was born in southeastern Montana uh, from a mixed uh, family. My dad is, uh, was uh, Mexican. My mother was German. We lived without electricity, without water, without plumbing. We raised chickens in the only second room of the house. So when I talk about homeless people or people that are on the margins, I know about it firsthand. I became the first person in my family, both sides, to graduate from college. And I did that with an engineering degree from the School of Mines. So uh, there have been many since then, but I just wanted you to have a little bit of background of where I'm coming from in helping these people. This happens every Sunday morning at Roosevelt Park. We've been in different locations, but generally that same area off of Maple Street, north of Omaha. And uh, we now, I believe, have a, a fairly decent home. It's not intruding into anybody's private residence or business. Uh, those were some complaints before because we would have this gathering of uh, in, a, in a half hour time of 50 to 75 to 100 people and they just kind of come out of the woodwork to join in. Uh, my pitch to you at this point is that if you have any interest in seeing this firsthand, just stop by. You don't have to have any Anything preparatory or that, just just come yourself and experience what we've been experiencing for about eight years uh, every Sunday. Um, sometimes you question whether or not 
people deserve to receive this type of uh, food brought to them, etc. And I questioned that also in the very beginning. Um, I was actually nervous about it. I was uh, concerned that I'd be, that my family would be uh, approached all the time by a homeless individual. Um, but it's turned out to be a magnificent experience. There's uh, gratitude expressed every Sunday, and we uh, really appreciate the, the fact that the police no longer have to come. They were there in the, in the early stages. Uh, there's self-policing done by the individuals. If somebody is getting out of hand, they stop the individual and say, look, this will end if, if you behave the way you're behaving or if you talk the way you're talking. So we were, we were very pleased with that aspect of it. The uh, reason for doing this in Matthew chapter 25, the corporal works of mercy are laid out by Jesus. And he doesn't really say that you have much choice in the matter. Pretty much says at, at the time of judgment, we're going to decide whether you're over here or whether you're over here on my right or my left. And what did you do for the least? So there's quite a bit of motivation right there. Uh, we consider ourselves, my wife and I, the middleman. God's the provider and has done a fantastic job of doing that. All we do is prepare and serve. And then the poor, the homeless, the lame, uh, they receive. And that's God's plan. Somebody at every location. When I said you could be taken advantage of in this process, what really clarified that for me and made me understand that this was not the case was we were serving a meal at minus 35 uh, out of the back end of the car because you couldn't set up. There was snow all over. And we had at least 30 people come out of the woodwork, out of the uh, bushes and down the bike path. Those are not people that are trying to scam you. Those are people that are absolutely starving and needing some energy to, to stay warm and to stay alive. The organization is uh, ad hoc, as, as you put it, but it ranges, it's ecumenical. It ranges from Catholics to Protestants to agnostics to atheists, uh, all with a common heart to help. And that was a real lesson to me also, was that this idea of service isn't just limited to one segment of faith. Uh, and then these recipients of, of what we're doing, are, there's no pre-qualification. Nobody says, get over here in line, we're going to do a breath an, an analysis on you. Your eyes look a little strange. Uh, we're not going to serve you today. 
or whatever. They're there because they're hungry and we're responding to that need. Uh, a typical week goes kind of like this. We, my wife and I decide what the menu is going to be. Yesterday we cooked a 21 pound turkey. We're gonna do a little Thanksgiving early. Uh, the church, Blessed Sacrament, the parish we belong to, and others donate uh, used clothing, uh, toiletries when they're uh, traveling type individuals that accumulate a lot of little personal toiletries, etc. Right now it's blankets, mittens, warm socks, uh, that sort of thing. We receive a lot of donations. And the way it's distributed is we take a tarp and put the tarp down in the area of where we're serving the meal and we put the clothing on the tarp. So it's an open air store that people are trying on things or holding them up or whatever, but whatever doesn't get taken by the individuals that morning then gets carried over to the thrift store for uh, the mission and deposited there. I want to tell you a little bit about what actually takes place within your life when you're doing this sort of outreach. Well, the first one is the introduction of a fellow by the name of Edward. Edward was in a horrific car accident when he was 13 on the reservation up by North Dakota and has lost pretty much the use of one arm and one leg. So Edward, we met dragging himself from the, the social services motel that he had been assigned, would come to the feed, and then we would give him a ride home. That way we got to see how his living conditions were, which were atrocious. He had what he called a Cadillac. That was his vehicle. It was his wheelchair. But he never rode the wheelchair. He used it for collecting aluminum. And, excuse me, I saw him pushing that wheelchair all the way out of town to the metal place to sell it a small amount of aluminum. That was his income. Good news is he now has a Mercedes. <laughs> His Mercedes is a tricycle. It's an adult tricycle with a carrier on the back. I passed around to you a series of cards that are colored, geometric. They were done by a fellow by the name of Tavis. Tavis uh, spent 30 years in prison for murder. A drunken stupor, he killed somebody. He paid the price. And he wound up uh, at Rapid City. And to earn money to uh, uh, pay for some food, he would sit at the West Side McDonald's and do these and sell them. And Tavis died in Storm Atlas. He lived under the West Chicago Railroad Bridge. He wasn't found for six months. Those are priceless. 
There's a, a lady, a grandma named Wanda. Wanda had seven grandchildren, and she lived out of her van, and she would transport the grandchildren every Sunday morning to the feed. Wanda and five of her grandchildren died about a month ago in that car wreck by Redshirt. Um, that van was donated to them by somebody that would come to the feed. And then we have Marlon. Marlon was an interesting man. He announced, I need a tent. And so we thought, well, let's, let's just go get a tent. We'll go over to uh, um, Kmart and buy a tent for him. And I said, we can get you a nice dome tent. Do you mind? And he said, absolutely, I don't want one. I want a pup tent. And I said, well, how come you want a pup tent? And he said, because the police watch where I'm at, and a dome tent with color and stuff would show up through the shrubs. But a pup tent, the old military pup tent, down low, he could get away with setting it up at night and staying in that one spot. These are the type of individuals, if you spend a little bit of time finding out just how real they are and not just this poor person moving or this silent person moving around up and down the streets, uh, you get to know that God is in every one of us. And how are we rewarded for doing this? Well, one direct reward for me is I've been estranged from a brother. And the brother loves to hunt. He lives East River. And in a conversation with him, he said, oh, I can never eat all the venison that I uh, shoot and, and have processed. Would you care for some of that? I said, absolutely. So every year I get about 160 pounds of venison, all frozen and in chubs from him. I have a daughter, Regina. Regina is the chef here. So if you ate meals here, she prepared them. And um, what has happened is that because of our relationship, if somebody announces they've got 140 people coming to a conference and 80 show up, she has to prepare for 140. So that leaves 60 portions that are not being used. <laughs> we, take, we take the portions and we use them. Uh, and we prepare a, a meal out of that. I love to garden, so gardening is a, a big supply of, uh, of food. But what really is the reward is that you'll be working the line and people will be coming and every once in a while in the busyness of looking down so you're hitting the trays right, etc., you hear a God bless you. And you turn and you say, he really does. And God bless you too. Um, when you look up, and you see these different eyes staring at you, coming down the line, and you think, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. You're Jesus. 
and it, it makes everybody on the same plane. We, uh, we firmly believe that. And then our Pope has given us another incentive for being dedicated to this, where he said, if you're going to be a minister, a shepherd, you need to get the smell of the sheep on you. And that's a motivator right there. So anyway, this is how we spend our Sundays and lots of weekends just preparing for it. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Um, one of the things that that experience locally teaches you, I mean, and this is like a corny cliche that poverty is not a statistic, it's not political, it's not, it's colorblind and it's real. And when you get, when you do those things and, and the experience that Rich talked about on Sundays, um, you, you see people coming up that are literally living out of the back of their car, frozen with little kids that all they want is food. And, and we, I know it is another cliche to say we get more from that than we give. You get 10 times more from that experience than you can ever give to them in the form of food. So it's a tremendous opportunity to, to realize the importance of living out the gospel in that way. So now um, the panelists are all up here. They're open to questions if anybody has any based on anything they've heard. If you haven't heard something you want to hear, go ahead and ask them. Just let us know which one you'd like to talk about. I just want to say, I've been to his um, Sunday morning, and it is so amazing because the line, the, all of a sudden, there's nobody there, and you think that I go to the wrong place, and then all of a sudden, tables show up, and then people come out of their cars, and they bring, you know, one's got lasagna, the next one's got chili, and then somebody has turkey, and somebody has a bag of peanut butter sandwiches, and somebody has a bag of, of ham sandwiches, and then they're gone, and right behind him, here comes more people, and now they have, you know, tater tot casserole, and it's just amazing, and just whoosh, 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 and you're just standing there going, what's going on? So anything you want to bring, bring it to eat it. You don't have to bring turkey dinner. If you want to bring peanut butter sandwiches and watch people thrill to death to get a peanut butter sandwich, yeah. what time should they show up? 8.30 on Sunday mornings. And going into this, as Rich said, going into this time of year, the, the blankets and the yeah. Mittens and you know winter stuff is really important. Roosevelt Park. I can't remember the name of the cross street. It's yeah, it's, it's a, it kind of curves around, doesn't it, Rich? Yeah, it kind of curves around. Come, come down the ball fields and where the curve yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Any questions or reflections, okay, Chuck? Uh, Saint Vincent de Paul. Uh, you've got stores and you've got. Oh, um, well, we're we're somewhat affiliated with the stores, but we actually run separately. Um, so there there are employees at the stores, and, and there are volunteers. Um, but our conference is separate, and, and as far as what people would do that volunteer with the conference, um, take phone calls, like we just, we're looking for people to, like maybe even retired people, to uh, answer the phones during the day, call the people back, like get their account numbers for, you know, whatever, the landlord's number, whatever. Um, so we can 
go ahead, assign ourselves, and take the next step. Um, that tends to run very well when, when we have people doing that. But it's a big job, so we're, we're actually trying to find five people for the, you know, well, every day of the week. the conference then? Pardon? You're not associated with the store? Um, we're not directly associated with the store. I mean, <clears throat> St. Vincent... What does the conference do that? I mean, it's kind of a broad term. Well, we're just a group in, in this <coughs> geographical area, and we have two others, two other conferences, and then we're overseen by a council. Um, so our council consists of some of us, you know, that basically oversee the three conferences and, and what we do. So you get phone calls and primarily what? You call up and say, I need clothes, I need food, I need a yep. paid, I need a car fixed. All of the above. Um, do, you, we, do you still do home visits? Yes, and, and yeah, I was just going to say that we, we do home visits. Um, we're supposed to do them on everyone, but we just don't have the manpower. But um, and that's where you get the the best joy. That's how we differ than most organizations. Is that we often go into the home, and and that way we can pray with them, and really assess the situation, and maybe even see other things that they may need, and you know, take it from there. So that that's where our spirituality really grows with with our friends. Um, just for each person, uh, I'm curious when you felt, or like how did you discern a call to serve in the capacity that you did? Like what, what was the personal invitation, or like what was the, the thing that led you to say yes to the service you do? So I start? There was a, a lady that met my wife in the grocery store, and they were just passing acquaintances over the years, and she'd been doing this for a period of time, and said, yeah, come just watch and see what's going on. And that was the hook. We did go do that, got through the apprehension stage, and then we've just been doing it for about eight years now, so. Wow, that's tremendous. Yes. Well, we don't, we do say nice of Joe. We do a community to feed our group and the parish all help do it over two months. But we get the same people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. it really, you know, just, they're so thankful. Mm -hmm. We try to make, they try to, everybody gets involved. I've, I've uh, built a lot of projects for different tribes in the yeah. state of South Dakota. And being at different ceremonies, etc. You never take anything home. Yeah, yeah. Everything gets put in containers and handed out. Yeah, that's what we do. Watetsha. Yeah, we call it Watetsha buckets. Yeah. So they have a yeah. lot of them, but then you take them home. Yeah, yeah you're right. One thing I've learned about um, doing this kind of work is we all tend to have preconceived notions um, about people, about groups. And I, like many, thought, well, people that are homeless don't try very hard, or they you know, just want handouts. And that is so rare. I have found that to be so rare. And so many of them are just, thank you so much. This, I haven't been in this position before, and I'm, I'm ashamed to ask for help, um, you know, but I broke my leg or something, and I can't work, or whatever. And it, it really changed my perspective on on people that most people 
it gives them pride to work and it gives them pride to to be able to um, you know raise their children and I don't know how many single mothers I've had said please help me I don't want to take my kids back to the reservation you know because a life there is you know, no life at all so Nancy, how do people find out about you to call your organization? Um, 211 is the biggest, is our biggest resource for uh, phone calls. Um, so I, I think we're probably number one on their this is who you need to call list um, just by sheer volume of the phone calls we get. So yeah, 211 would be our biggest. It's a phone number in office at Cathedral. There is, yes, yes, and we, yeah, we have a helpline. So two on one gives them our helpline number, and then they call and leave a message. Brent, um, our son and his family have been at the park several times, and I sent, I made blankets, and I sent blankets of them. If they are not going to be there, how how can I get those things? Well, get the blankets out. Yeah. Yeah, Blessed Sacrament, uh, the office will accumulate them in what we call the bowling alley, which is the back storage room. And then once a week, I go there and collect everything that's been okay. stored. Thank you. Anyone else? Just going back to the question that you felt. Oh, yeah, I guess my question for each one was like, what, what is it, what was the call or like the thing that made you say yes, I guess, to the one? Um, I think for me, uh, I talked a little bit about getting kind of inspiration from my brother and just his experience going, but you hear from almost everyone that goes that you get you receive so much more than you give. And you go into the trip having the thought, you know, I'm going to help these people and um, because they, they can't help themselves as much as we can help ourselves. But being there, you really get a lot more from them than what you end up giving them in return. And so um, that was kind of the the part that stuck out of me. Yeah, for me, it's kind of hard to say, you know, the, the first to make a trip, the, the subsequent ones have been very easy because I've seen firsthand, you know, what, what occurs. And I, I, again, the, the biggest part for me is watching it through the students' eyes and seeing the impact that it has on them. The first time, I think it was more, you know, Father Martin asked me, um, but, you know, in my job at Black Hills, I'm extraordinarily busy. I travel a lot. And when I'm not working, I generally do two things. One is ideally be outside doing things with my family, or I do a lot of service things. So I'm involved with St. Francis Mission and some things with the diocese and the school and, and other things. So one of those is generally what I, I take pleasure out of, and I like doing that kind of work because it helps me disconnect from the intensity of my day job, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when I'm asked, it's generally pretty easy to say yes as long as I have time. 
and I could be there, which is the challenge sometimes. So that was really the first one. But so the subsequent ones are very easy, and I've seen the impact. Easy to say yes. For me, it was um, sitting there in church one day. I'd been wanting to volunteer for a long time and just didn't know. Kind of put it off, and my kids are in college, and you know, so it was like, okay, this is it's time. I was at mass one day before it started, and all right, it's time. And that day, somebody talked about, got up on the podium and talked about St. Vincent de Paul, and I thought, okay, that's just what you're telling me. All right, you, you lead me, <laughs> and he did. Good question. We are five minutes. Oh. Well, anyway, if you would, please thank the courage of all the families.